Thank you. Thank is it's, yeah, it's on. Thank you. Thank you, Dudley. It's an honor to be here. I have said on numerous occasions over the last five years that when you are at the top, it's almost impossible to know who your friends are. When you have so much to offer, it's almost impossible to know who your real friends are. But when you're at the bottom and all you have to offer is leprosy and liability to people, <laughs> you discover very quickly who your friends are. So thank you. Thank you for being a friend. Um, thank you for not just preaching grace, but believing it enough to invite a ragamuffin like me and entrust me with this pulpit, which I am highly honored uh, to be entrusted with. So it is good to be here. I, Dudley mentioned uh, that Stacy and I are from Florida. That's partly true. That's where we live. Stacy is from Texas. <clears throat> she is a Texan through and through. She comes from a large Texas family. In fact, she is the only one in her large extended family who does not live in Texas. Uh, I am a native Floridian, born in Jacksonville, raised in Fort Lauderdale. We lived in Texas the first year we were married, and I told her, don't get used to this. <laughs> we're heading back to the beach soon. Um, but we moved to Jupiter, Florida uh, in May of this past year. Somebody knows Jupiter. Yes, great place. Uh, I'm from Fort Lauderdale. Jupiter is about 45 minutes north of Fort Lauderdale. We were called there by a group of people last spring to start a church, which is something I never thought I would ever do again. And it's something, quite frankly, I didn't want to do when the call came. Uh, but God made it very clear through a variety of different sources that that's exactly what he wanted us to do. So we hail from Jupiter, Florida. The day we left, it was 91 degrees and sunny. And when we landed here, it was like 50 and rainy. And I looked at her and I said, what is it that you people love about Texas anyway? <clears throat> and then today we woke up and it was absolutely beautiful. Now I will say, okay, that my heart, at least a large, large part of my heart has been in Dallas since 1976, and I'll tell you why. Because in 1976, in the Orange Bowl in Miami, the Dallas Cowboys played the Pittsburgh Steelers, and it was the first Super Bowl I ever watched, first Super Bowl I ever remember watching anyway. Cowboys lost that game 21 to 17, but from that moment on, for whatever reason, I became a die-hard Dallas Cowboy fan. Yeah. <clears throat> and I have been a diehard, idolatrous Dallas Cowboy fan my entire life. In fact, I was telling Dudley last night, I can pretty much guarantee that there is not a soul in the entire state of Texas, or the country of Texas, however you want to say it, that is a bigger Dallas Cowboy fan than me. It is an idol in my life that I am proud of. I nurture it. I polish it. I feed it. Um, so anyway, let's hope with the coaching change this year that we will be up to some good things in Cowboy Nation. Okay, that being said, um, I want to focus your attention tonight for a few minutes on Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. This is that famous chapter in Luke where Jesus tells three parables of lostness, 
First, the parable of the lost sheep. Second, the parable of the lost coin. And then the third and most famous one is the parable of the lost son, otherwise known as the prodigal son. And most people are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son. You've probably heard a bunch of sermons on the parable of the prodigal son. It's an amazing parable. It's one of my favorite parables in the Bible. But tonight, I want to look at the parable of the lost sheep. Beginning in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And my hope and prayer is that God would add miraculous blessing to this reading of his holy and inspired word. Let's pray together. God, with one voice we pray, come thou fount of every blessing. And tune our hearts and our minds to see and to savor your amazing grace. I pray that your unconditional love, your outrageous mercy will sweep us off of our feet, will soften our hearts, and will set us free. God, we know that because you are sovereign, nobody is here by accident. Every single one of us is here by divine appointment. And that means that you have something very, very specific to say to each and every one of us. So I pray that you would say it loudly, that you would say it clearly, that you would say it compellingly, that, you've, that you would overpower our unbelief and open our eyes and give us ears to hear. And as a result of seeing Jesus high and lifted up, as a result of you fixing our eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, that we would leave here tonight feeling lighter, liberated. So massage this truth down deep into our bones, for it alone can set us free. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So my opening comments about this passage have nothing to do with the content of this parable. I want to talk for a couple of minutes first about the context of this parable or the reason why Jesus told it. And two obvious things pop out in the first two verses. I love verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15. I don't think that most churches believe it, but I love 
these two verses in such clear spoken language. It sets out before us two kinds of people. The kinds of people that were attracted to Jesus and the kinds of people that were appalled by Jesus. Um, The first thing to notice are the kinds of people who were attracted to Jesus and It tells us that in verse 1 very clearly. Social and moral outcasts, spiritual outsiders, people with very bad religious resumes. These were the kinds of people that verse 1 says were flocking to Jesus. And I've said this for many, many years now, but if we are not attracting the same kinds of people that Jesus attracted, we are not preaching the same message Jesus preached. It's that simple. Um, We have various ways in church leadership circles, um, various various ways to gauge the health of a church. People talk about financial stability, growth and attendance, soundness of doctrine, and so on and so forth. And while all of those things are relatively important, um, the real measure of church health, if all you're reading is verse 1 in chapter 15, the truest measure of church health is the presence of sinners who know that they're sinners and the absence of self-righteousness. That is the truest measure of a healthy church. The presence of sinners who know that they're sinners And the absence of self-righteousness. I have a friend named Jean LaRue from Louisiana who says very aptly that if you're not the worst person you know, you don't know yourself very well. (laughs) Very true. It seems to echo the Apostle Paul's words at the end of his life. That I am the chief of sinners. I was telling a friend today at lunch that for most of my life growing up in church, I believed that Christian growth or spiritual progress was a bottom-up kind of thing, uh, that we start low and we end up high, that we start at the bottom and we end up on the top, that spiritual growth is akin to climbing a ladder. But when we read the Bible, we see a very different kind of progression, So much so that it turns our paradigms upside down. Look at the Apostle Paul, for instance. Philippians chapter 3. Where does his life start? He begins by giving us his very impressive spiritual resume. Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day, as to the law, flawless. I mean, he gives us all of his religious strengths. He starts off at the top, and over the course of his life, God systematically breaks him down to where at the end of his life, he is saying things like, I'm the least of all the saints, and I am the worst person that I know. Spiritual growth is always downward, always. And let me remind you that the symbol of the Christian faith is not a ladder, it's a cross. And oftentimes what we do when we become Christians or very early on in our Christian faith, we see the cross as the symbol of our faith, and then we get Christianized. And oftentimes that Christianization happens inside the church where we are subtly taught 
it may be not ex- it, maybe it's not explicitly stated, but at the very least it's implied that the symbol shifts from a cross to a ladder once you're in the door. And now it's all about performing for God. It's all about doing the right thing at the right time with the right attitude all the time and all of those things. Um, but the fact of the matter is the more carefully you read the Bible, the more you see that the way of growth is downward, not upward. That we begin thinking that we're strong and the closer we get to God, the more we realize just how weak we are. That we begin thinking that we're better than we are, stronger than we are, more independent than we actually are. And as God continues to work on us and in us, he brings us to the point where he lays us flat on our back so that the only way out is up. I'm preaching through some various well-known passages in the Old Testament and retelling some famous stories like Gideon, Joshua, whatnot. And one of the things that strikes me about all of those stories is all of those stories seem to point out that God will not share his glory with another. And so for in Jericho, for instance, his battle plan is ridiculous. Gideon, same thing. I mean, he whittles down this massive army down to 300 men who lap water like a dog with pots and pans and trumpets. And and God tells us very clearly why that is his battle plan, because it is in our weakness that he showcases his strength. Um, So first thing we notice are the kinds of people who were attracted to Jesus, people who knew that they were guilty, people who knew that they were sinners, moral outcasts, spiritual outsiders, people with bad religious resumes, people who felt desperate, people who knew their shame. Those were the people who flocked to Jesus. The second thing to notice are the kinds of people who were appalled at Jesus. And verse 2 tells us that very clearly. Religious people spiritual insiders, people with impressive moral resumes. These were the people who were appalled at Jesus. The religious will always, always, they always have and they always will grumble about grace because religion works on a hierarchical system in which people or groups are ranked one above the other based on some moral status, always. That's the way religion works. Religious people operate with an us versus them mentality. We are better than them. We are more spiritual than them. We are more deserving than them. We are not like them. We are more important than them. We are more right than them. And so there's a lot of us versus them in religion. Religion is driven by this hierarchical system that the Apostle Paul knew very, very well, as he explains in Philippians chapter 3. And because of this, this is why religionists are allergic to grace. Because grace wrecks hierarchy. It eviscerates the us versus them mentality, and puts us all, regardless of rank or status, on the same level playing field of need and desperation. That's why, whether you're talking about Jesus, the Apostle Paul, Martin Luther, 
or anybody else throughout history who was myopically committed to preaching the message of it is finished rather than just do it, who are the people that complain about it the most? Inside the church people, religious people. It's amazing to me. I have a very good friend who is a mentor, father figure by the name of Paul Zoll. He's a retired Episcopalian priest. Uh, Paul Zoll has been a friend that sticks closer than a brother to me. Um, and Paul has said for years that the church as an institution in its current expression will always be allergic to grace. The very structure itself is built on a foundation of moralism. It's like trying to pour new wine into old wineskins. It's a sad state of affairs, for instance, that uh, churches tend to be the last place rather than the first place people run to when they bottom out. Uh, one of the things that my wife and I, uh, we hear from people all over the world, and because I'm very open about my story and uncomfortably transparent in telling my story, we hear from people all over the world who feel safe enough to tell us their crash and burn stories, their stories of bottoming out. And while all of their stories differ, all of the circumstances of their stories are different, there is one common thread that runs through every single one of those stories. And it's basically this, that the church is all too often the scariest place rather than the safest place for fallen people to fall down and broken people to break down. Well, why is that? Because of everything we read right here in terms of the kinds of people who were appalled at Jesus. Uh, the moralistic version of the Christian faith that is so prevalent today is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel is far too scandalous and scary and unsafe uh, for most people inside the church. Um, so when the religionists and the legalists or the Pharisees and scribes grumble and say they receive sinners and eat with them, you're doing it right. Okay? Um, I mean, it's amazing what these religious leaders are grumbling about. That Jesus is receiving sinners. Um, so when the religionists, the scribes and the Pharisees, when the legalists grumble and say they receive sinners and eat with them, uh, you're, you're doing it right. Keep going. Press on. Um, well, it is in response. That's the context in which this parable is told. But it is in response to their self-righteous grumbling that Jesus tells these three stories. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. See, the, the problem with the religious people back then, and many Christians today, is that they assume that Jesus came to reward the rewardable. They assume that Jesus came to give gold stars to the well-behaved. That's what they assume. But this parable is intended to rub the salt of lostness on the sensibilities of those who think they've arrived. That's what it's for. So, for instance, when, um, when Jesus said, I have not come for the righteous, I've come for the sinner. He wasn't saying there are two kinds of people in this world. There are good people who don't need me, and there are bad people who do. 
I haven't come for the good people because they don't need me. I've come for the bad people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there are two kinds of people in this world. Bad people who think that they're good and bad people who know that they're bad. Those are the two kinds of people. And the bad people who think that they're good will never listen to a word I say because they think they're good. It's the bad people who know that they're bad. They are the ones who will hear my voice. It's a remarkable reminder that God loves and uses bad people who fail because bad people who fail are all that there are. I mean, God loves and uses weak, broken, bad people who fail because there aren't any other kinds of people. Well, religion hates that because it's built on this hierarchical system where we rank people, we, we cast people into groups, and we rank them one above the other based on status and achievement and performance and all of those sorts of things. Um, but these parables, all three of these parables, but this one in particular of uh, the lost sheep, uh, it's not simply intended to rub the saltness, the salt of lostness on the sensibilities of those who think they've arrived. They're also intended to comfort those who are lost, who feel lost, which, whether you realize it or not, is all of us in such a big variety of different ways. Um, Growing up, these parables, and this parable in particular, were explained to me as parables of evangelism. Okay, so in other words, these parables were told by Jesus as a way to describe the lengths to which we should go to reach people who aren't Christians. You know, Jesus has a hundred sheep, one of them wanders off, he leaves the 99 to go after the one, and the way that was always explained to me growing up was this is an evangelistic parable. This is a parable describing the, the length that we ought all to go for lost people. Um, the lost people then, this, the way I was taught, um, was that uh, there were two kinds of people in this world, lost people and found people. The lost were people who did not know God and the found were those who did. And while that is one way to describe spiritual lostness, it also makes the simplistic assumption that Christians don't get lost. When we reduce the category of lostness to include only non-Christian people, and we don't have a category of Christian lostness, uh, we will walk through life in this world as Christians disillusioned, completely disillusioned. It will encourage our inbred self-righteousness because we will at some level think that we're in a much better position than they are. Um, but at the very at the very least, we won't be able to make sense of our own journey as broken people through this broken world with other broken people and all of our meanderings if we don't recapture this category of what it means to be lost and to feel lost and to get lost as Christians. Um, we need to rediscover the reality of Christian lostness, and this parable reassures us that Jesus never stops coming after us and finding us in all of our lostness 
as Christians. Um, so let me do my best to convince you that you're lost, okay? <laughs> That's my first job. My first job is to break you down so you're feeling so desperate. And then, and then, you'll be ready to hear good news in a way you may have never heard it before. Um, every single one of us have areas of lostness. We all experience lost dreams. We experience lost relationships. Many get lost in their pursuit of meaning or love or purpose or importance. We experience a vast lostness when one of our children goes off the deep end, when our parents get divorced, when our marriage is failing, when someone that we love dies. We experience tremendous lostness during those things. We feel lost when things don't go the way we hope, when we get the bad doctor's report, when she breaks up with you, when you don't get the job you want or get into the school you want. We get lost in anger. We get lost in hurt. We get lost in bitterness. We get lost in unforgiveness. We get lost in pride and lust and selfishness and the thirst for credit and the need to be right and so on and so forth. That's life as it really is. So often we do our best to um, operate as Christians, sadly, in my opinion, um, in such an idealistic way. Christianity is realism. It describes reality as it is. That's why I love Romans chapter 7. Love it. Because that was the first chapter in the Bible after I became a Christian that made sense to me. I was feeling disillusioned about my newfound faith as a 21-year-old. Feeling very disillusioned, wondering why I was still internally struggling with the same things I struggled with before I was a Christian. And I kept questioning, well, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe it didn't take. Maybe I have to go forward again. Ask Jesus into my heart again. Maybe I wasn't sincere the first time I did it. Let me do it again, okay? I mean, I was plagued by this fear that maybe I wasn't a Christian because somewhere along the way, I had an idealistic version of what the Christian life was rather than a realistic version of what the Christian life was. But I was committed to reading my way through the Bible. I knew that's what Christians were supposed to do. So I started in Genesis and got to Exodus, skip Leviticus. <laughs> Numbers, I've always hated math. Just the name of the book alone made me skip that. Deuteronomy, I said, I don't even know what that means. Then I got to Joshua and Judges, and those were some stories that I was familiar with. Uh, and I loved Psalms, although some of them were difficult. And Proverbs, I loved because it was so practical and so easy to understand. And then I got into the major and the minor prophets, and I was like, screw this, I'm going straight to the New Testament. <laughs> so I skipped half the Bible, okay? And I got to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those were stories that I was very familiar with. Some of the parables were hard to understand, but for the most part, I was familiar with it. Um, read through Acts, loved the book of Acts, because it's just a really well-told story of the, hist of the birth of the church. Um, and then I got to Romans, and Romans 1, 2, and 3 made sense to me, because it was describing just the, the lostness of humanity. And then Romans 4, 5, and 6, that's some heavy theological lifting there, okay? And as a 21-year-old just starting off reading the Bible, that was 
hard to comprehend. Um, And then I got to Romans 7. Just as I was getting ready to throw in the towel on Romans, I got to Romans 7. And I started reading where Paul's describing the internal struggle he was having as a Christian. And that was the biggest encouragement to me. Because for the first time as a Christian, I didn't feel alone. And I was like, this guy gets me. He's just, in describing himself, he's described me. And he talks about this internal battle, this war that was raging within him. And there was nothing he could really do about it except grumble about it, mourn over it. Until he gets to the end of Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body of death, O wretched man that I am? And that bleeds right into the beauty of Romans 8. Beauty. He looks outside of himself, above, out and above, and says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he concludes the great eight, which is what I call Romans 8. He concludes the great eight by saying, There is nothing in heaven and nothing on earth that can separate you from God's love because God's love for you is in no way dependent on you. It is dependent exclusively and entirely on what Jesus has done for you. Which means that there is nothing you can do that will ever tempt God to leave you or forsake you. Ever. God's disposition towards you is forever fixed because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. So the the foundation and the focus of the Christian faith is not our transformation It is Christ's substitution. That is the foundation. Now, transformation is the fruit, but substitution is the root. Substitution is the focus and the foundation of the Christian faith. Um, And so Romans 7 was a great, great encouragement to me um, because as I thought about my own lostness as I was experiencing it as a young Christian, Paul knew how I felt. He described how I felt. And we can get lost in all of these things that I mentioned a few minutes ago. But the deepest, I think, and this bleeds into my story a little bit, but the deepest and most subtle form of lostness that we experience is when we confuse our role or roles with our identity. That's when lostness, especially for Christians, happens. Um, When our role becomes our identity. For instance, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Many retired people I've talked to over the years have described a profound lostness of meaning now that their career is over. Uh, For so long, they had located their identity in the work that they did and all that came with it. And now that their role had changed, they didn't know who they were. Um, they experience a late-in-life identity crisis. I remember uh, a handful of years ago uh, sitting with my granddad alone in his bedroom. And, uh, of course, by that time, he was older and not nearly as active 
And I asked him, quite frankly, if he was afraid to die. We didn't know when he would die. He was always so healthy, but he was old for a long time, it seemed to us. Um, so much so that when he finally died at 99, we were shocked. Like, what? We thought he would live till he was 125, based on his track record. But, um, but I asked him if he was afraid to die, and he said, you know, I can be honest. As a Christian, I've never been afraid to die. But one thing that I was not prepared to be and to do was to get old. And then he went on to describe what he meant by that. He said, you know, for my entire life, the phone has been ringing off the hook. Uh, people in important places have been calling on me for counsel and advice. Uh, I have been on the front lines of this Christian movement in the 20th century, and I've loved building bridges and connecting people and being part of what God is doing in this generation and other generations. Uh, and he said, now the phone doesn't ring. I'm not being asked to do the things that I used to do. I don't have the physical ability to get up and go do what God called me to do for so long. And he readily admitted, honestly, um, he was very transparent and readily admitted that that was a real struggle for him. And he understood at that point that somewhere along the way, his role and his identity got confused a bit. And that happens to everybody in some way, shape, or form. I, I also see this kind of thing with moms when they become empty nesters. For so long, their identity was being a mom and taking care of the kids. But when the kids grow up and move away, they lose their sense of purpose and significance. They don't know who they are. They don't know what to do. Their role had become their identity. I remember my, I have three children. Stacy and I combined have five, but I have three. And um, my oldest is now 25. But when he was, oh, probably 14 years old, he was a basketball player. He was a basketball player his whole life. But when he was 14 years old, I was driving him home from a basketball game. And this was a game where he did not play particularly well. He was a great basketball player. But he did not play particularly well. He didn't do well. The team lost the game. And as we were driving home, it was just he and I, he was just bawling. And I'm like, Gabe, honey, what is, what is the matter? And he said, I played terribly. And I said, honey, it's okay. I mean, you have another game in two days. The best basketball players who have ever played have bad games. It's fine. Bad games can actually be a gift because they teach us to focus on certain things that we can get better at. You know, I'm trying to do all the normal things that a dad would do in that moment to encourage him. And he said, Dad, you don't understand. I said, what? I'm a basketball player. And his whole point was, if I don't succeed on the court, I'm a failure. He was a young man who had clearly confused his role with his identity. I mean, we see this all over the place, all the time, in so many different ways. Uh, when your role becomes your identity, you experience new forms of lostness every time your role changes. Every time. As Christians, we can talk about our identity being anchored in Christ. Thank God that is true. But what we affirm theologically is very, very different than how we feel functionally. Very different. So we might say, theologically, 
justification by works is a bad theological idea. And you're exactly right. It's death. But functionally, every single one of us at some level believe in justification by works. That we have to generate our own worth. We have to generate love by becoming lovable. We have to generate or manufacture acceptance. Um, All of these things, while we may say theologically that justification by works is bad, functionally it's something every single one of us struggles with all the time. Doing our best, consciously or unconsciously, to forge our identity by what we do and by who we can become and who we're connected to and what we've accomplished and achieved and whatnot. Um. But when your role becomes your identity, you experience new forms of lostness every time your role changes. Um, Because I was unfaithful to my first wife, who I was married to for 21 years, I lost everything in 2015. Everything. Uh, Dudley mentioned this uh, in his introduction of me, but at the time, uh, I was... Flying high, professionally speaking. I was writing a book a year. My sermons were broadcast all over the world on television every week. My sermons were broadcast every day on the radio. I was traveling the country, speaking at conferences and other events, universities, seminaries, you name it. I was pastoring a large church in my hometown of Fort Lauderdale. Um, And then it all came crashing down in 2015. Uh, Friendships, gone. Family, gone. Job, gone. Credibility, gone. Financial stability, gone. Hope, joy, gone. Opportunity, gone. Life as I knew it was over. Over. And as I was explaining to a group of people earlier this afternoon, I had never in my life experienced depression. I've always loved the sights and sounds and smells of life. I've always been an extrovert. I've always been a people person. I have always felt very deeply for those who suffer with depression, but it's not something that I had ever experienced. This was the first time in my life where I could not see the light at the end of the tunnel. I was convinced that my best days were behind me. I was absolutely convinced that I would never enjoy life the way I had. I was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that I would never experience joy and peace like I had before. Life as I knew it was over. And suffering with the self-imposed guilt and loss and regret and shame that I was dealing with made me believe that death was preferable to life. I had never been suicidal a day in my life for 41 years that I can remember. And for a solid 18 months, at least, the thought of taking my own life crossed my mind every single day. Every day. I just could not believe that there was a way for God to redeem this mess that I had made. I didn't believe it. I wanted to believe it, but I couldn't believe it. And I didn't realize it at the time, but my value, my security, my deepest sense of who I was, my identity was anchored to my roles. Anchored. 
And because of this, when those roles were gone, I didn't just suffer grief and pain and guilt and shame and regret and loss. I began to suffer a severe identity crisis at 41. Massive identity crisis. Dudley talked a little bit ago about idolatry. Idolatry not simply being a statue or a rock that people in far off lands bow down to three times a day. Idolatry is anything that we depend on smaller than God to invest our lives with meaning and worth and value and significance, which means your marriage can be an idol. Your children can become idols to you. Um, Your work, the way that you look, dreams that you have for your life. Maybe the dream of one day getting married is an idol to you. I mean, John Calvin said that the heart is an idol-making factory. We take the good gifts that God gives us and we turn them into ultimate things, things that we worship. Well, I didn't realize it at the time. I was writing books against this stuff. I was preaching sermons week in and week out about the finished work of Jesus and how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is what defines our identity. It's where identity is located and anchored. And yet I was finding so much worth, value, significance, security in things infinitely smaller than Christ's finished work on my behalf and didn't even realize it at the time. And oftentimes you don't know what it is that you're depending on to make life worth living until those things are gone. And what it exposed about me was that for too long I was depending on these things to invest my life with meaning and value and significance. And now that these things were gone, I had no idea who I was. I had confused my roles with my identity. Now, there are some preachers out there who will say, well, this is evidence that Tullian was never a Christian in the first place. I mean, there have been people who have said that. Um, Because we have no category of what it means to get lost as a Christian. And because we don't have a theological category for what it means to get lost as Christians, then what do we do when... Christians meander off when they wander off. Well, we conclude they must have not, you know, if they wander from us, they must not have been from us in the first place. I mean, we literally come to the conclusion that they must have not been Christians um, because we have this idealistic version of the Christian life that does in no way correspond with reality at all. Um. And so for me, when those roles were gone, uh, I went through this massive identity crisis without these things and without these people that I had depended on to make me feel important. I no longer knew who I was. I was lost. As a Christian, I was lost. But the good news for me and for all of us in this parable, and this is where it just gets stunningly captivatingly beautiful. The good news for me and for all of us in this parable is that Jesus spares no expense to find us in our lostness. That he meets us 
in all of our meandering over and over and over again. 70 times 7. When we foolishly wander off, he comes after us. He picks us up. He puts us over his shoulders and he carries us home every single time. Every time. He meets our guilt with his grace and our mess with his mercy and our faults with his forgiveness every time. His pursuant love is mugging in nature. Mugging. And he doesn't chide us for getting lost. That's just grace upon grace. I mean, Jesus, the parable doesn't tell the story of a shepherd who is radically inconvenienced by this stupid sheep who wanders off. Now, he's got to leave these to go after this one. And when he gets there, there's no record in this story of the shepherd going, how many times have I told you Stick with the rest of us. Now I've had to leave the 99 and come after you. Do you know how inconvenient that is? And you know how dangerous that is. I mean, I could get back to the 99 and now they're lost. Like seriously, what is wrong with you? I've told you the same thing over and over and over again. I mean, this is the last time. You do it again, I'm not coming for you. I'm not, I'm done, I've had it. Now, that's the way a lot of people inside the church think God is like. They really do. I mean, it's sad, but it's true. I don't think the church today uh, understands just how mind-blowingly radical and counterintuitive the gospel actually is. It is good news That's what it is, full stop. Good news. If you walk out of a church service, for instance, thinking more about what you need to do than what Jesus has done, you have not heard the gospel. You you haven't heard it. Now, the pastor may say the word gospel. He may invite people to receive Jesus after the sermon's over. I don't know, but if you walk out of church thinking more about what you need to do than glorying in what Jesus has already done. You just, you haven't heard the gospel. Jesus tells this parable and paints the picture of a shepherd who goes after this wandering sheep. And when he finally gets that sheep, um, he doesn't chide it for getting lost. He seeks us, he finds us, He rejoices over us and throws a party, period, every time. That's what he does. Um, While others may give up on you, while you may give up on you, God never gives up on you, ever. Two things I have learned very acutely over the last five years since my own crash and burn, is this. First, you are capable of failing in a way that is unimaginable to you right now. Every single person in this room, I don't care if you're 95 
or 15. Every single person in this room is capable of failing in a way that is unimaginable to you right now, okay? That's the first thing I learned because my fall was unimaginable to me, unimaginable. The second thing I learned is that God's love and forgiveness are big enough to cover the fact that your greatest failure may be in front of you. Those two things. You are capable of failing and falling in a way that is unimaginable to you right now. And God's love and forgiveness are big enough to cover the fact that your greatest failure may be in front of you. That is Christian realism. And that is where the rubber of the gospel meets the road. No matter where you go, how far you run, or how stubborn your roaming may be, he will never stop coming for you with infinite amounts of gritty grace and forceful forgiveness, ever. He won't. In fact, it is, according to this parable, it is his joy to come after you. He doesn't come after you begrudgingly. He comes after you joyfully. You've gone to the same pigsty 10,000 times. 10,000 times. And every time you go, you swear you'll never go back. You promise God, I'll never go back. This is the last time. And you go back. And you make promises again and you go back. And I know that in our heart of hearts and in our minds, we think, okay, God has to have a ceiling on his forgiveness. Why? Because we have ceilings on our forgiveness. We do. And it's understandable, you know? I mean, someone betrays you over and over and over again, and you come to my office, well, I don't have an office, you come to my house, okay, and tell me that, I'm going to say, you need to create some serious space between you and this person. And that would actually be wise counsel. The problem is when we impose that on God and assume that's the way God operates. We live in a conditional world with conditional people, and we are conditional people. But God is unconditional to the core. So he is not... He doesn't come after us begrudgingly. He comes after us joyfully. In fact, I'll even go further. Your lostness doesn't annoy God. Okay? Doesn't annoy him. In fact, it gives him an opportunity to do what he loves to do, which is to find you. You can say these things. And most churches don't invite me back when I say it. <laughs> because they think, you can't say this stuff. In fact, it's because you believe this stuff that you tanked your own life. Do you see how dangerous this is? If you actually believe that God's love is infinitely unconditional, people will become serial killers. No one's going to care about obedience no one's going to care about, you know, doing what God wants. 
And here's my answer to that. You show me one person who has been so captured and captivated by the amazing grace of God and the unconditionality of his love who immediately responds by saying, that's good news, now I want to go serve myself. It can't happen. Instead, a heart that has been gripped and grasped by the outrageous nature of God's mercy says things like, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. My fall did not happen because I believed the gospel too much. My fall happened because in the moment when I needed to believe it, I believed the gospel too little. The radical hilarious grace of God is not to blame for my sin or anybody else's sin. Um, God comes after us over and over and over again, and he does so with great joy. He, shepherd goes after this lost sheep, picks him up, puts him over his shoulder, carries him home, organizes a party, and celebrates. That's what he does. It's so hard to believe that God delights over us. But when you understand that he delights over us because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, it becomes a little bit more believable. Um, I'm, I'm going to conclude with this. The, the picture of him leaving the 99 to go after the one is a is a beautiful picture because it's Jesus' mission in picture form. I mean, think about this for a second. Why would any sensible shepherd leave 99 sheep to go after one? I mean, dude, cut your loss and move on. <laughs> Robert Capon, who is, in my opinion, the greatest thinker and writer on the grace of God since the Apostle Paul, okay, um, said this in his book on the parables about this parable. This parable can hardly be interpreted as a helpful hint for running a successful sheep ranching business. Okay. <laughs> he goes on to say, the result of pursuing one lost sheep will only be 99 more lost sheep. Okay. No, it's the picture of him leaving the 99 to go after the one is a picture of the divine spoils that Jesus left behind to come and get us. Leaving all of heaven, taking on human flesh and frailties to come into the muck and mire of our lostness just to bring us home. Time and time again. It's a parable about the cosmic lengths to which Jesus goes to find you, to find me, over and over and over again. And I can tell you right now that getting lost in the big way that I got lost only helps me appreciate and glory in the finding work of God more than ever. I should be dead. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you right now, <clears throat> if, if I knew that I was going to get in a car to go back to the hotel and die and never have another word to say to anybody publicly, 
this is what I would want you to hear, okay? I am standing before you, and I am alive today, not because in my lostness, in my darkest moments, I held on to God. It's because in my lostness and in my darkest moments, God never stopped holding on to me. I, I let go of him 10,000 times. And he never, ever, ever let go of me. And he will never, ever, ever let go of you either. Let's pray together.